So I am picking up from where I started back in uh, Hebrews 2. So broke Hebrews 2 into uh, three different sections. And I'm just going to keep this timer on. Um, and so we're going to read, we're going to go through Hebrews 10, uh, 2, 10 through 18. I'm going to read it and then we can pray. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he, sanctifies the, for, he, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things, that through the death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people." For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your power, uh, for your spirit, for your grace. Lord, I pray that we would hear the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would uh, cover up um, faulty logic, um, misspoken words, that we would hear the truth, and that we would uh, grow closer to you through this time. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for this, and thank you for your word in this church, in your name, amen. <clears throat> so, um, good if I start with page one. I love a good fantasy book. Uh, I grew up uh, reading sort of the, the high fantasy. So my favorite, and my favorite books of all times all have this similar theme. So whether it's The Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Pridian, Pridian, however you say it. So like the Black Cauldron, White Alexander um, books. Uh, or even Harry Potter later on when my kids um, started coming around. I loved that story, that adventure story, that story arc that was there, where you had this unlikely hero, unassuming, unexpected, you know, whether it's a hobbit, a pig boy, four displaced siblings, an orphan in a closet. You had this unassuming character. Uh, and as the story develops, you realize that they're part of something greater. Uh, they're part of prophecies. They're part of forces of evil, good and evil, that are battling that are going on, and they're a part of that battle. Uh, they're, they're representative of this people group that they're associated with. Uh, they de- and they develop into something more through a journey. This journey is a catalyst that changes them or, or evolves them. Uh, the battle, and they're, they're involved in a battle with evil to save that group or to save that time or to save something. And then they're transformed at the end into something that they weren't, and something better or more complete than they were at the beginning. <clears throat> and that's what this section of Hebrews does, is it, it creates a story arc of this adventure story, except this is a realer story. It's a, it's a real story. It's something that actually happened. And those are all shadows of something that is truly the true adventure story. And I think we're all, just you can see it by the amount of movies and books and, and time and energy that's spent on these things, you can see that people are hooked by that type of a story. So before we get into it, I just want to give a quick recap of Hebrews and what kind of helps set the scene. Uh, and I, this is, I just copied and pasted from previous sermons, so if you have a good memory, this will be a little bit of a repetition. Uh, so this is a small, struggling church, likely in Rome, 
Uh, although Matt thinks that this is in Palestine, but he also thinks Matthew was the first gospel written, and I think Mark is the first gospel written, and he's wrong, at least for this week. Uh, so there's, there's maybe 15 or 20 people in this church. It could be, it's that small. Uh, it's mostly, if not exclusively, a Jewish body. Uh, and this, this book is not necessarily a letter. It's more likely a sermon, but there's kind of nuances there back and forth. So they don't even know, they don't know who the author is. They don't know, they can't really categorize it as one specific genre, genre in the New Testament. Uh, so this church, they've had many challenges from outside and within. So we see in chapter 10 that this church has endured hard sufferings, that they've been the, the body has been publicly exposed to reproach and affliction from government officials, from neighbors, from coworkers, from bosses. They've had property that was plundered, property that was plundered. They had people come in and steal stuff from their homes or just remove them from their homes and, and put in, move other people into their homes. And initially they responded well. Uh, they partnered with the people that were displaced, that were afflicted, that were um, you know, being treated improperly. Um, and they took the reproach and the affliction on with their, with their fellow members. Uh, they had, and they had compassion on those in prison. They would go and bring, meet with those in prison. They would pray with those in prison. They'd bring food for those in prison. Uh, but they were weary of those struggles now. This had been ongoing. And instead of those friends coming out, getting out of prison, instead of getting their things back, instead of moving back into their homes, they were seeing that they were likely to go to prison soon. They were seeing that their homes were likely to be plundered and taken away from them. So they were seeing that things were not improving, and they were getting discouraged. So discouraged that um, this book has four to five very explicit, intense warning passages. Um, that people were not, they stopped coming to church. They were so discouraged, they stopped coming to church. A lot of them, start, they stopped meeting together. And like Bud had mentioned, that not just meeting together on, on, on worship services, but fellowshipping with one another throughout the week, throughout their time around. So they weren't being a part of a body. They weren't being true congregants and fellowshipping. They were getting caught up in strange teachings. And they were, they were just spiritually battered and tired. They were tired of enduring, tired of waiting, and they wanted to give up. So Hebrews 2 starts off with one of those warning passages, encouraging that body to not drift, to not, to not let go of the anchor of Christ, and to not go back into the world and to become something that you used to be, but to hold on to that anchor. But these people had this sense of foreboding. They knew something was coming. And so this passage sort of is, is the, the, the pinnacle of, this, of the chapter that talking about why, this, who this anchor really is, and the story of why he's such a significant anchor. So in, first, uh, in verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So what... I love about this passage, and it's, it's probably one of my favorite, and, uh, is, is this word founder. So this word founder is translated founder in the ESV, but it's translated a bunch of different ways. It could be translated as um, author, pioneer, captain, leader, hero. And so we're seeing that God, for his fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. So this God who created all things, and created all things for his own glory, saw it fitting to send his son to be the founder of their, to be the founder of their salvation. So these words 
are designed, this word founder is designed to create a story arc in the minds of the people hearing this letter or hearing this, this book being read to them and reading it. So they see founder or, or hero or something like that, and they, they, have a, they have an image created in their mind. There's a story, a template that's set up in their minds. So my favorite commentator, and if you ever work your way through Hebrews, this guy, you've, you've got to read him. Um, <clears throat> he's William Lane. He says that the word that that's used in here was also used in the stories about Hercules. So when these Jews, so were, who are Hellenistic Jews, they, they spoke Greek, they were raised in a Greek culture, and so they were Hellenistic Jews. So they are very aware of because the Greeks love to talk about champions, love to talk about heroes, love to talk about gods, and that's what they would do. That's how they would spend their time. So when they saw this word founder or hero, they would think of Hercules. And Hercules, he had, he was, uh, he suffered. He went through challenges and trials. And he even wrestled the dark-robed Lord of Death. So there's, there's, there's thinking something along those lines. So this is triggered in their mind as they're, as they're going through this. So just real story, real quickly going through sort of the outline of this, we see that in verses um, 12 and 13 that Jesus has prophesied to do this. So we see in there's Psalm 22 and then parts of Isaiah that Jesus, there's a prophecy here, that Jesus is part of something greater. That he is coming in verse um, 16, He's helping the offspring of Abraham. So there's a timeline here, something that a covenant and a promise that God set up with Abraham is still, there's this timeline, this storyline, string that's going through that Jesus is part of and that these people are part of and that so Jesus is wound into this whole storyline, the redemptive storyline that he set up. And then he came in flesh and blood to be like us in every respect. Right, verse 14 came out like in flesh and blood, and then verse 17, in every respect, to know it to be like us in every respect. And while he was here, he suffered, he was tempted. Uh, through dying, so he eventually died, and through dying, he destroyed the one who had the power of death, the devil. And then he was, after he died and was raised, raised from the dead, he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the end result were the many sons and daughters were brought to glory through their perfect founder, through this story arc. So that's what Jesus has done. Right, since the fall, we've had a broken relationship with God. And God has, through the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, through the Ten Commandments, which kind of flushes that out some, and then through the purity laws and the other sort of ideas, uh, processes that God put in place in the Old Testament, he was creating ways for people to speak to, to interact with God so that they wouldn't be consumed by his glory, his holiness. They wouldn't be consumed by what he needed because we kept on falling short. But it was never complete. So this has been going on forever and ever. We have epically been failing over and over and over again trying to have a right relationship with God. We couldn't create, we couldn't blaze that path. We couldn't fight those enemies. We couldn't write the story because we always kept failing. We always kept getting stuck. We always, it was not complete. So, as a pioneer, Jesus was this trailblazer. Right? He was able to go into the wilderness and blaze a trail and get to the promised land. He was finally the one able to do that. He was finally the one to write the story that's never been written. Right? He came as a babe. He came, he suffered, 
he died, he was risen again. So he, set, he had this whole thing. He, he did it perfectly. We see in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. So Jesus in his time on earth was able to be something that this world never had. So he did it without sin, which, is, which was the problem that we had that we couldn't do. That was the thing that was destroying our adventure story because we were trying to do the same thing, but we couldn't do it no matter how hard we tried. So this sort of sets the story of who Jesus is and what he did, right? So that's the big picture. But interspersed with this whole storyline, this adventure story, is familial and intimate language. So Jesus is our brother. And as, even as he tells us this story and tells us what Jesus did and how he did it, it tells him that he did it as the son, right? That second person in the Trinity, Jesus was the son. And we see in verse 10, we see this language over and over again. In verse 10, he was bringing many sons to glory. Verse 11, he was not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 12, I'll tell of your name to my brothers. Verse 13, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So you can't read this story without knowing that he is your brother, without knowing that he is intimately involved with you, this whole story. And then verse 16, where it talks about helping the offspring of Abraham. Jesus was a literal offspring of Abraham. We aren't that offspring of Abraham, literally. We don't have that bloodline of Abraham, the actual physical bloodline of Abraham, but we've been grafted as believers. We've been grafted into that vine. So we are united by Christ because of that bloodline as well. So we are intimately involved, know Jesus. Jesus intimately knows us. So he, we are grouped together with Jesus. In verses 12 and 13, it actually starts in 11, um, we see that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to associate himself with us. He's not turned off by our sinfulness. He's not turned off by our weakness. He's not turned off by our incapability to do what he was finally able to do. He doesn't, he's not ashamed to be with us, to be associated with us. And what's ironic is that we're often ashamed of him. We're the ones that should be thankful that he's not ashamed to be with us, but we're the ones that are often ashamed of being with him. You know, I know there are times where I don't say something because I know it's going to get some sort of a response or I know, I'm gonna, you know people are going to laugh at me or you know, whatever it is. You know, that, that's being ashamed of, of Jesus. But he's not ashamed to do that. He hasn't done anything to be, shamed, to be shameful of, and we do it all the time. And not even, not as he just not ashamed, but we see that he proclaims our names in the public place. He's happy to be associated with us. He's happy to let people know that he loves us. And this, this is so much deeper because he's not ashamed even though he's known us as intimately as we can be known. He's seen sin and he's been in a body that has been tempted by sin. And he's been in a body that has experienced pain and suffering and the brokenness that we, are in, we have in this world. So he knows how we could react. And he sees how others have reacted. 
So he knows all the ins and outs. He knows how dirty we are. He knows how sinful we are. He knows the depth of that, yet he's still not ashamed, even though he knew us in every respect. So, uh, as a brother, he's not just ashamed to know us, but he also is happy to, to proclaim our name and to shout us out, but he also is thinking of us. When, he, when he's, his work is done, he's also thinking of us. So we see in, in verses uh, 12 and 13, there's three different quotes, and we're just going to touch on them briefly. So the first quotation is from Psalm 22. It's a sec- Psalm 22 is broken up into two parts. The first 21 verses, it's a lamentation. Just the, this, for 22.1 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the words that Jesus said while on the cross. So it was, and it's often thought that this, Jesus was meditating on this psalm when he was suffering, when he was being beaten, and when he was laid on the cross. So this is the words that were going through his head. The prayer that he was praying on the cross was the psalm. And that, so that first part is all that lamentation of being treated cruelly, being mocked. The second half of that psalm, or the second, at verse 22 on, it's talking about the vindication of that person who was waiting on the Lord. Right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're not, he- you're not listening to me. You're not hearing me, is that first 21 verses. And then, Psalm 20, from 22, verses 22 on, it's saying, you, you've, you saved me, Lord. You helped me. You've done this. So, Jesus knew, and he was thinking of us when he was on the cross, excited to proclaim our name while he was bearing our sins. So we were on his mind. We were in his mind when he was doing that. And I'm going to kind of skip over the, the Isaiah passages because they're kind of complicated to handle. And, and what they do, what the, the author does, and a lot of times they do, when you see a section of, um, of, of Old Testament cited, it's not that text that they're, that specific text that's written. It's really a hook to go back and remember what the whole passage is being written about. So Isaiah was dealing with uh, the Israelites who were not hearing the prophecies that God gave him. They weren't listening to him. They weren't turning their ways. They weren't confessing their sins. So he took up his prophecies. He folded them up, and he gave them to his disciples and said, put them away, hold on to these, and we can pull them out and see how God has been faithful hundreds of years down, hundreds of years, hundreds of years from now. He knew God's faithfulness to the remnant, to that remnant, those people that were loving God, that weren't sinning, that weren't turning away from him. And that's what he's saying here. God is faithful. God has a remnant, and we are that remnant. By that line that he started, and he's holding on to, and he's trusting in God, that remnant is us. So we're part of that. So it's saying that you know, we are his children, that we are the ones that we've been adopted by him, and we are not going to be taken away from him. He's not going to let people take us, take him away, take us away from him. So he's reinforcing that idea through the Old Testament by hooking us back to the Old Testament and the redemptive storyline back on the Old Testament that we are his, that we are his brothers, we are his family, we are his children. Right? I mean, that, that idea that we are he and the children, right? that idea that he and the children, like we are part of that group. He's associating us like siblings. You know, like we are, we're part of this group. We're bonded. You know, there's this, we can fight and we can be mean to one another, but we're still bonded, and we're bonded with Christ in that intimate way. So, because he's the author, and he set up this storyline, he set up this redemptive storyline, 
And he did it in an intimate way, not like we're watching this on TV, not that we're hearing a story told by our parents, not that we're reading a book, but he did it in a way that we are connected with him. Like we can say, I know him. You know, like when you look at something and you see somebody famous on TV, you're like, I know him. I've met them. Right? This is what we can say about Jesus. So he is doing this great thing. He's fighting, conquering the one who has the power of death, the devil. And we know him intimately. He's our brother. So because we know him intimately and because he's done this great thing, because he knows us rather intimately, he is the perfect high priest. So in verse 17, we see he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So because of the work that he did, because of that journey that he went, because of the vanguard, the pioneer work that he did, the trailblazing that he did, because of the hero work that he did, the champion that he was, because he was the brother who took on our form, who took on our flesh and blood, who knew us in every respect, because of those two things, he is our perfect and ultimate high priest. So he's a God that sanctifies. He's a God that makes us holier and holier, less and less sinful. He's the one that proclaims from the pulpit the tell of, his, tell of God's name to the congregation. He's the one that helps the offspring of David. He's the one that makes propitiation for our sins. And he's the one to help those who are being tempted. So he had to come on earth as a man and do what man was incapable of doing, something that we try to do every day. And some of us forget what we're trying to do. We go through the grind. We're kind of like the, people, kind of like the, the audience of this book. You know, we're, getting, we're tired of enduring. We're tired of seeing the prayers not being answered or not being answered in the way that we want them to be answered. We're on that hamster wheel. Or we've gotten drunk, like Matt's been saying, on the fruits of this world. Right? We're too inebriated with what this world has to offer to realize what we're doing. So Jesus was sent by God right, with that sole purpose to save as many sons and daughters from lifelong enslavement for the fear of death by conquering the one who was the power of death, the devil. Right? When Jesus came, he crushed the head of the serpent. When he died on the cross and rose again, he crushed the head of the serpent. He, while he was here, he prayed so deeply that he sweat blood. Right? And we have no concept. The humans, us humans, normal, sinful, born into sin humans, have no concept of the depth and breadth and power and weight and dirtiness of sin. Right? We, we fight sin. We see victory in sin. But even though we see victory in sin, another type of sin or another form of that similar sin pops up at the same time. Right? So we, even though we see victory in certain areas, sin keeps on coming at us. It keeps on hitting us over and over and over again. So we can say no, but then eventually, and there are times where we do say no, and then we give in to sin. We give in to temptation. We respond angrily. We do those types of things. When we do that, sin is still there, right? Sin is still there. So we don't, we don't even said no to sin to the point where we were perfect. Jesus understood what sin was. Before he came to earth as a, as a baby and grew, he was able to see sin. He was able to see the, the, 
the condition of man during the times of Noah. He knew like the horrible things were happening, and he saw that. Not just saw it as a, watching a movie, but he was, like, he was aware of the thinking, the logic, the brokenness of the abuser and the abused. He was aware of the whole thing. Then he came down to earth as man and became like us in every respect, and he experienced it. He was part of it, not just as a God, but now as a, a man and a God. So he experienced that brokenness of sin as a man like us in every respect. And he didn't give in to sin. He was tempted by the devil, and he said no. He was, he was mocked, he was ridiculed, and he didn't respond in anger. He didn't respond or in unrighteous anger. He didn't respond in inappropriate ways, in sinful ways. He said no to sin, and he kept on saying no to sin. So sin is here, and then it's, it's like sin is like kind of a strong man arm wrestling a little kid. Right? The, the kid can fight, you know, fight, and he might even let the kid almost get close to hitting the pad. And then we know that as soon as he wants to, he can just pound that arm down. Right? That, that's sin to us. But Jesus kept on fighting that sin, and he realized how truly powerful that sin was. And because he did that, because he did that work, because he knows sin and knows what the consequences of sin are, he's able to be our faithful and merciful high priest because he knows the struggles that we're dealing with far better than we do. He knows how entwined and deeply enmeshed you know, that, that our insecurities are, our, our, our lust, our envy, our coveting. He knows that. We have no clue of how deep that is, but he knows it. And because of that, that's, the way he, that's why he can be a merciful and faithful high priest. He's merciful because he knows the pain, he knows the power of sin, and he's a God that loves us. And he's faithful because he's going there over and over and over again. Every time we sin, 70 times 7, he is advocating for us at the right hand of the Father because he has freed us from that slavery of death, the fear of death. He has freed us over and over and over again, and he's advocating for us over and over and over again. He is that perfect high priest. What the priest did for millennia, every day, they put on certain robes, they'd sacrifice for their sins so they could sacrifice for our sins over and over and over again. All the blood, all the entrails, all the flour, all the birds, like all the things happening over and over and over again. But Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice, lived the perfect life as a human. And as the perfect priest, he sacrificed himself and laid it on the offering. And so he once and for all satisfied God's wrath. He made that propitiation for our sins. He averted God's wrath from us finally and completely so that we have no longer have that hanging over our heads. And we have, a relation, we, have a, we have that relationship that we have been striving for since the fall because of the work that Jesus has done. We now have that access to God because of that work. So he blazed that path. He, he set the foundation of our city so that it won't crumble, so that it won't be shaken. He freed us from the slavery of fear of death. He lived among us, and he knows us. And he conquered death by dying and rising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of God the Father. And now as a brother, he is advocating, us, advocating for us deeply, personally, and intimately. 
So a few points of application, and then we can close. Uh, so don't lie to yourself. So in your mental narrative, and our mental narrative is the way we deal with sin, the way we deal with life. You know, we tell ourselves we're lonely, we're not good enough, we don't understand, nobody understands, these things happen to me. Right? We tell those things in our minds over and over and over again. But we have to read God's word, and we have to challenge those lies. Right? Because we're not alone. God knows us in every respect. He was made in our flesh and blood. So, we might, and you might even say that Jesus has never dealt with infertility. He's never dealt with certain kinds of abuse. He's never dealt with, dealt with the loss of a child or a divorce. He hasn't gone through those experiences. It doesn't mean that Jesus necessarily experienced every type of trial and temptation that we had. And he hasn't experienced every heartbreak this world has to offer. But when we're desperate and when we're discouraged, how do you cry out to the Lord? You pray some sort of iteration of Psalm 22, 1 and 2, right? You you say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh God, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. So when we're feeling it, we we groan, we feel forsaken. We know what that loneliness is. You know, we've cried out to God and said, you're not answering. Day and night, but you're silent. Right? We, like, I've laid in bed at night looking up at the ceiling, and it's like my prayers are bouncing off the roof, the ceiling of the, my bedroom. Like, I, they're not going anywhere. I know, God. God, why aren't you listening to me? Right? But that's a lie. That's not true, even though we feel it with every part of our being. You know, we want to believe that he's not there. We want to believe that he's not merciful and not faithful. He's not our high priest, that he's not in the service of God right now for us. That he doesn't understand, and that he's even cruel for putting us in this situation. But God is there right now, even as we're sitting here. Right now, God is advocating for us because of our sins. He is our faithful high priest, merciful and faithful high priest. Another one, don't rewrite his story. So he's the author of our faith. So if you know Jesus, if you're sitting here and you know Jesus, he's written your redemption story. He's built the foundation for you. He's blazed the path. He's conquered the enemy. If you're doubting, if you're drifting, if you want to say God doesn't love me, if you want to say God is forsaken me, God is not hearing my prayers, God is not giving, answering me the way I want him to, God is not, not making my kid a believer, God is not fixing my marriage, God is not letting me fight this sin, God is not giving me the job I want, I still have all this debt, whatever it is, right? God has written your story for you, and that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. So, do, so don't rewrite your story. Believe that God has a redemption story for you, and you're not sitting on the bench. You've not the, the B team. God had a plan for you when he brought you here. Remember your baptism. Remember what that means. Remember God's covenant. Remember the covenant that we, that we said last week, or the week before, whenever it was, and we brought the members in. Remember those things, because that's the truth. And, and lastly, he knows you intimately. Right? He knows us in every respect, so, and he's not ashamed of us. So we, need, so we should get to know Jesus. Right? Open up his word. That's what he's speaking to you. Know his word. 
pray those words, believe those words. So we need to get to know Jesus because he knows us better than we're ever going to know ourselves. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Uh, Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you that you love sinners, that you are a a faithful and merciful high priest advocating for us at at your right hand. Lord, we pray that you would bless us and help us to love you more and uh, turn from sin less and turn to you more. In your name, amen.